At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 49, Prelude to the Chinese Civil War. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoyed this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. In the next four episodes, we're going to examine the Chinese Civil War and the rise of Communist China. So as not to cause too much confusion, I will be using the terms Kuomintang and nationalists throughout these episodes. They are one and the same party. I use both because it can be repetitive, saying nationalist or Kuomintang all the time. As always, forgive me for any mispronunciations. In 1949, when Mao declared the People's Republic of China, it came as a shock to many in the West. China had been in a bitter civil war since the 1920s, and many were shocked by how the war so rapidly came to an end in a communist victory. In the two-generation-long conflict, an estimated 20 million people died, which was compounded by the deaths of 14 million people in the war against Japan. Only the Soviet Union suffered more casualties than China in World War II. China's civil war was not a simple affair, but a complex, nested war. It was a multi-generational conflict within a protracted regional war with Japan, within a multi-year global war encompassing all the great powers of the period. The Kuomintang had been perceived by many as the stronger faction, as it controlled the cities and had more money and a professional army partly trained and equipped by the Americans. The communists, in contrast, controlled the, the countryside and the remote northwest of China, and fielded a smaller guerrilla army, which was equipped primarily with captured Japanese arms. In America, Republicans and conservatives were outraged with the fall of China and blamed the Democrats and Truman for losing China. The fall of China to communism marked the first major policy failure for the U.S. in the Cold War, and arguably its first defeat. The rise of communist China and the detonation of the Soviet Union's atomic bomb only a few months before represented a major victory in the course of the Cold War, breaking the America's dollar in atomic diplomacy. The Soviets, too, now had the bomb, and despite $900 million in American aid and weapons, the American-equipped and advised forces of the nationalist China had been defeated by Soviet-supplied and advised communist Chinese forces. The fall of China fueled McCarthyism and the witch hunt for communists in the State Department and the rest of American society. It also influenced American involvement in Korea and later Vietnam. Communist China, as we will come to see, had a large impact on the outcome of the Cold War as it shifted from a Soviet ally and supporter of revolutionary movements to quasi-American ally by the end of the conflict, opening up its markets to American investment and abandoning the communist economic system in favor of state-sponsored capitalism. 
The struggle between the communists and the nationalists wasn't only decided on the battlefields, but in the hearts and minds of the Chinese people. Mao's ideas around national liberation and asymmetrical warfare would deeply impact the Cold War and the course of decolonization. National liberation, along with strategic bombing, blitzkrieg, and the atomic bomb, were some of the technologies and methodologies to come out of the Second World War, which fundamentally influenced the course of the Cold War. Despite China's industrial and technological immaturity, the methodologies of national liberation presented a significant challenge to the industrialized warfare of the modern period. Mao's teachings were deeply influential in East Asia, Africa, and South America in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, with a continuing relevance for today. It should come as no surprise that his writings have influenced Al-Qaeda and ISIS. In retrospect, the communist victory in 1949 was probably one of the greatest events of the 20th century. At the time of Mao's victory, China was one of the most rural and backward economies in the world. Today, China is the second largest economy in the world and is projected to overtake the United States as the world's largest economy by 2028. So what happened? How did a rebel force of ragtag communists defeat a U.S.-equipped and trained force with greater diplomatic standing and industrial capacity? To truly understand what happened and why it happened the way that it did, I think it's important to understand the Chinese Civil War and the rise of the Chinese Communist Party, not just from the perspective of the United States or the Cold War, but from the perspective of Chinese and global history. From the global perspective, as we will see, three nations would have a massive impact on shaping China in the 20th century. Japan, the Soviet Union, and the United States. Japan's short-sighted regional ambitions in China helped to spark a wider world war and inadvertently aided the communists in their victory over the nationalists. In eight years of intense warfare, the Japanese decimated the nationalist conventional forces and economically crippled the country, weakening the nationalist regime and unintentionally strengthening the communists. The U.S. attempted to view the Chinese Civil War through the lens of its global struggle against the Axis powers, not understanding the politics of the region and leaving its post-war China policy in shambles. The Soviets were much more astute than either the Japanese or Americans in understanding Chinese politics and interests, which it manipulated for its own ends. It brokered the truce between the communists and the nationalists against the Japanese in the correct assumption that Japan would fight either the Soviet Union or China, but not both. From the Chinese perspective, time and history was conceptualized differently until the 20th century and the rise of the Communist Party. In the West, starting with Christianity, the conception of time and history became linear or teleological with a definitive end. In the New Testament, it is measured by Christ's birth, death, resurrection, and his return and final judgment. With the Enlightenment and scientific revolution, while much of Western thought changed, the general perception of time and history moving towards a predetermined end endured, although what that end was became debated. Hegel saw time as moving through phases of development towards individual liberty. Marx saw time and history leading through phases of class relations and economic production, ultimately resulting in a communist utopia. Darwin's On the Origins of Species reinforced this perception of time with the conception of evolution or the idea that simple organisms evolved to become more complex organisms over hundreds of thousands of years. As we will see later, modernization theory saw human development through technological and economic phases resulting in a consumer society. Even in our current age, the conception of time on a linear improvement of human relations and economic equality was espoused by President Obama in his long arch of history that bends towards justice. In the Chinese perspective, as with most Eastern and Buddhist traditions, history is seen as being cyclical, moving through stages of birth, youth, maturity, old age, and death, like the seasons or the life of a person. 
Nations and empires, too, were seen as going through stages of establishment, growth, a golden age, decline, and fall. This concept isn't totally alien in the West either. People often say that history repeats itself. Hence, the rise of communist China has to be understood in the wider context of Chinese history. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD, China arguably was the greatest human civilization. By the early 19th century, the Manchus had conquered China in 1644 and had created the richest empire in human history up to that point and the second largest in Chinese history. In many ways, the accomplishments and achievements of Chinese civilization would blind many of its leaders to the implication of changes overseas and the need for reforms at home. China's leadership assumed that China would remain the hegemonic power in Asia, the dominant military power, the economic center of the world, the source of scientific and technological innovation, and the benchmark of human civilization. They assumed that the world order constructed by their ancestors over a millennia would continue to organize international relations. The diplomatic order of Asia was a tributary system with China at its center, surrounded by concentric rings of even more, quote, barbarous states. In the Chinese perspective, there was only one civilization, China, surrounded by a sea of barbarian states. China's immediate neighbors did not contest China's economic, military, and cultural superiority. Korea, Japan, and Vietnam were all deeply influenced by China. Over time, they adopted its practices and paid tribute in exchange for gifts and the right to trade in the periphery of the Chinese empire. China's cultural influence was a one-way street by which China's neighbors became more like China. The remaining barbarians who desired more and invaded to take what they could from China, like the Zungre, Mongols, and Jintran Tibetans or Dutch based in Taiwan, met serious armed resistance and genocide at the hands of the Chinese. For the Chinese, the tributary system had organized the known world for thousands of years. Pride in the past produced an overconfidence in the 19th century. The Manchu Empire was in a terminal decline. An unprecedented wave of internal rebellions racked China, followed by a succession of regional wars and what became known in Chinese history as the Century of Humiliation. European maritime power, the scientific revolution, and the industrial revolution overturned the balance of global power slowly but steadily in favor of the Europeans. Domestically as well, the Qing Empire faced domestic challenges. In 1794, a secret religious society known as the White Lotus rose up in central China against the Qing dynasty. They promised their followers a return of the Buddha and an end to suffering and abdicated the restoration of the Ming dynasty. Although the rebellion continued for nine years, it never became an organized attempt to establish a new dynasty. Rather, it consisted of uncoordinated roving bands using hit-and-run guerrilla tactics. Vast sums of money were earmarked for the campaign against the rebels. However, these funds were embezzled by the imperial favorite Heisen and his friends. Not until the Qinglong Emperor died in 1799 was Heisen removed and the war really prosecuted. By that time, however, the regular government forces were too ridden with corruption to be of any use. The dynasty had to resort to a strategy of removing all food supplies from the countryside and collecting the peasants into a series of armed stockades. In the end, the war cost thousands of lives and a vast fortune. More importantly, it broke the fearsome reputation of the Manchus and weakened their control of the country. This revolt was followed by another, the Eight Trigrams Revolt in 1813, when another secret society attempted to seize the capital and restore the Ming Dynasty, ultimately failing, further weakening the regime. Meanwhile, China faced a new unprecedented threat from Europe. China had defeated the Dutch in 1662, evicting them from Taiwan, but the British Empire, which China fought in the First Opium War, 
1839 to 1842, was a much stronger opponent. Britain was in the midst of an industrial revolution, was a rising global empire, pioneering science, technology, and new financial and mechanical methodologies. In the 17th and 18th century, demand for Chinese goods, especially porcelain, tea, and silk, had exploded, creating a huge trade imbalance as silver flooded into China under the Canton system. To counter this imbalance, the British East India Company started to import opium into China. The influx of narcotics reversed the Chinese trade surplus, drained the economy of silver, and increased the numbers of opium addicts inside the country, outcomes that worried Chinese officials. The Chinese responded by attempting to ban the opium trade. They confiscated huge amounts of opium and banned foreign trade in the city of Canton. The British government, although not officially denying China's right to control imports of the drug, objected to this unexpected seizure of their property and dispatched military force to China. In the ensuing conflict, the Royal Navy used its naval and gunnery power to inflict a series of decisive defeats on the Chinese Empire. In 1842, the Qing Dynasty was forced to sign the Treaty of Nanking, the first of what the Chinese later called the Unequal Treaties, which granted an indemnity and extraterritoriality to Britain, opened five treaty ports to foreign merchants, and ceded Hong Kong Island to the British Empire. Extraterritoriality meant that the British couldn't be charged under Chinese law for crimes they committed in China. I want to take a moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. I want to also make a special thank you to David Hendrickson uh, for your very generous contribution. Your donations help to keep this podcast going. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. Moreover, if you like episodes about Asian history like this episode or episodes about the Malayan emergency or the French war in Indochina, Help us by making a donation or spreading the word. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so that you can get access to the commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. By the 1850s, it was clear the Qing dynasty was in a state of decline. In 1851, two large-scale rebellions erupted, the Taiping Rebellion, 1851 to 1866, and the Nian Rebellion, 1851 to 1868. Unlike the smaller, unorganized White Lotus Rebellion, the Taiping Rebellion was a large-scale civil war that threatened the existence of the dynasty. Based in Nanking, self-proclaimed convert to Christianity and brother of Jesus Christ, Hong Shu Tran led an army that controlled a significant part of southern China, eventually expanding to command a population base of nearly 30 million people. The conflict was the largest in China since the, the Qing conquest in 1644, and it also ranks as one of the bloodiest wars in human history the bloodiest civil war, and the largest conflict of the 19th century, with estimates of war dead ranging from 20 to 70 million, with millions more displaced. Simultaneously, the Nian Rebellion took place in northern China. It too failed to topple the Qing dynasty, but caused immense economic devastation and loss of life that became one of the major long-term factors in the collapse of the Qing Empire in the early 20th century. The dynasty also faced three Muslim rebellions in its western provinces which sought to succeed from the empire. The Pantheon, 1855 to 1873, the Dongan, 1862 to 1873, and the Xinjiang, 1862 to 1878. As you can see, the Qing Empire was in a constant state of war from 1851 to 1878, fighting rebellions in southern, northern, and western China simultaneously from 1855 to 1866, sapping the regime's strength. During this period, China faced another foreign invasion as well, the Second Opium War, against Britain and France, 1856 to 1860. 
The 1850s saw the rapid growth of Western trading interests as both France and the United States signed trade agreements with China. Great Britain, in an effort to expand trade in the region and extend their privileges in China, demanded the renegotiation of the 1842 Nanking Treaty. The British demands included opening all of China to British merchant companies, legalizing the opium trade, exempting foreign imports from internal transit duties, suppression of piracy, regulation of the coolie trade, or that's the importation of Asian contract laborers, permission for a British ambassador to reside in Beijing, and for the English language version of all treaties to take precedence over the Chinese language. To give Chinese merchant vessels operating around treaty ports the same privileges accorded to British ships by the Treaty of Nanking, British authorities granted these vessels British registration in Hong Kong. In October 1856, Chinese Marines in Canton seized a cargo ship called the Arrow on suspicion of piracy, arresting 12 of its 14 Chinese crew members. The British consul in Canton, Harry Parks, contacted Ya Ming Chin, the Imperial Commissioner and Viceroy of Langon, to demand the immediate release of the crew and an apology for the alleged insult to the British flag. Yi released nine of the crew members but refused to release the last three, which sparked the Second Opium War. France joined the war over the exclusion of French missionaries in southern China. Chinese forces were incapable of stopping the Anglo-French forces from capturing Canton, as they were still dealing with the Taiping, Nan, and Panthe rebellions. British and French forces eventually succeeded in capturing Beijing and burning the Summer Palace to the ground. The British, French, and the Russians were all granted a permanent diplomatic presence in Beijing, something the Chinese had resisted. The Chinese had to pay 8 million taels to Britain and France. Britain acquired Kulong next to Hong Kong. The opium trade was legalized, and Christians were granted full civil rights, including the right to own property and the right to evangelize. In 1879, Japan annexed the Ryukyu or Okinawan Islands, which was a Chinese client kingdom, which China was powerless to stop. A second war broke out with France in 1884, the Sino-French War, 1884 to 1885, which saw France win control of northern Vietnam. This was followed by the First Sino-Japanese War in 1895, which saw China lose its influence over Korea to Japan. This defeat was especially shocking to China's sensibilities, as they had regarded Japan as a tributary state. China's defeats over the last 60 years, the weakening of the Qing dynasty, and China's political instability culminated in the Boxer Rebellion of 1899 to 1901 a violent, anti-colonial, anti-foreign, anti-Christian, popular rebellion. The Qing government ultimately came to support the violent movement, which attacked foreigners and sought to purge China of foreign influences. Ultimately, an eight-nation alliance of Great Britain, the United States, Russia, Germany, Italy, Austria-Hungary, France, and Japan put down the rebellion, captured Beijing, and made China agree to the stationing of foreign troops in their capital, reparation payments of 450 million taels, and the growth of the Japanese and Russian influence in China. The Qing regime is often characterized for being weak, but it's amazing in retrospect that the Qing regime managed to survive into the 20th century, given all these internal and external challenges. Its days were numbered, however, and a military revolt brought down the monarchy, and in 1912, the last emperor, Henry Puyi, was removed from his throne and the Republic of China was established. The revolutionaries had elected Sun Yat-sen as the first provisional president of the Republic of China, but they were in a weak position militarily, so they negotiated with the Qing using General Yun Chi Kai as the intermediary. 
Yun arranged for the abdication of the child emperor, Puyi, in return for being granted the position of president of the Republic of China. Nevertheless, Sun Yat-sen was regarded by many Chinese as the father of modern China. He was born in southern China, but moved to the kingdom of Hawaii when he was 10. While there, he attended elementary school, where he learned English, math, and British history. Graduating in 1882, he attended Oahu College, where he attended one year before he was sent back to China for fears that he would become a Christian. Sun was unhappy with traditional Chinese beliefs of Canton, his hometown, and moved to Hong Kong, where he could study medicine, becoming a practicing physician, and converting to Christianity as well. As one would expect, Sun grew increasingly critical of the Qing regime, which refused to reform and modernize. In 1891, he returned to Hawaii and established a revolutionary society, Revived China, which sought to overthrow the Qing dynasty. Over the next 20-odd years, Sun would live in exile, advocating the overthrow of the Qing regime in favor of a modern republic. Following the rebellion of 1911, though, he returned to China, where he became the provisional president until turning the office over to Wan. Yuan's rule of China became increasingly autocratic, suppressing all opposition in 1913. To build up his own authority, Yuan began to reinstitute elements of state Confucianism. In late 1915, rumors were floated of a popular consensus that the monarchy should be revived and Yuan crowned himself as the new emperor of China. He expected widespread domestic and international support for his reign. However, he and his supporters had badly miscalculated. Many of the emperor's closest supporters abandoned him, and the solidarity of the emperor's clique of military protégés dissolved. There were open protests throughout China denouncing the new emperor. Foreign governments, including Japan, who had initially been supportive, suddenly proved indifferent or openly hostile to him, not giving him the recognition he anticipated. Sun Yat-sen fled to Tokyo and set up a base there, organizing efforts to overthrow the regime. Faced with widespread opposition, Yuan repeatedly delayed the accession rights in order to appease his foes, but his prestige was irreparably damaged, and province after province continued to voice disapproval. This was followed by a series of regional uprisings, and Yuan canceled his plans to become emperor. This was not enough for his enemies, who called for his resignation as president. More provinces rebelled before Yuan died from kidney disease on the 6th of June, 1916, at the age of 56. After the fall of the Qing dynasty in 1912, there was no restoring imperial China. The strong imperial institutions that had once ruled China for 2,000 years no longer held the meaning they once had in modern China. This central power, once destroyed though, proved to be incredibly difficult to reconstitute. Meanwhile, like in Tsarist Russia, many Chinese ethnic minorities saw an opportunity to finally win their independence. Tibet broke away in 1912 and remained an independent kingdom until 1951. Outer Mongolia broke away with the assistance of the Soviets. The Muslim Xinjiang also attempted to leave. Decades of fighting would destroy the Chinese economy, undermine its social structures, and left most of its people to live in a Hobbesian state, living poor, nasty, brutish, and short lives in a state of continual fear of meeting a violent end. After Yuan's failure to restore the monarchy, China descended into chaos. Generals became warlords controlling divided parts of China. They fought with each other, while an unsuccessful attempt was made to restore Henry Puyi to the throne. These wars between the warlords were not minor actions, but entitled World War I-style combat, which involved over 100,000 combatants in 7 to 10 provinces. These conflicts consumed more than a decade and much of the country and killed tens of thousands. China also nominally joined the Allies in World War I in hopes that the Allies would agree to hand over Qindao to the Chinese after the war. 
Qingdao had been a German colony but had been captured by Japan in 1914, who was allied with Great Britain at the start of the war. In 1919, when the Allies awarded the colony to Japan, student demonstrations erupted across China. Fueling the May 4th movement, whose more radical elements called for the destruction of traditional Chinese culture so that science and democracy could flourish. It was clear to most educated Chinese that the age and wisdom of Confucianism had passed. Nonetheless, there was great debate as to what type of philosophy should replace it. Everyone wanted a new China, but what type of institutions should this new China have? Republicanism, liberalism, nationalism, capitalism, federalism, anarchism, fascism, communism. With these new ideologies came new political debates, which could often be intense and or turn violent. Unfortunately, assassination, violence, and civil war became the method by which China decided upon its new ideology and institutions. While the warlords exhausted themselves fighting each other, Sun Yat-sen attempted to organize a government in South China. He created three different governments between 1917 and 1923. The first two fell after they were attacked by the warlords. The third government would survive until Sun's death in 1925. By the 1920s, he became the only figure with a national following. Unlike the warlords of China, Sun produced an ideology capable of transcending regional boundaries and a political party, the Nationalist, capable of organizing nationwide political support. The Kuomintang was centered on nationalism, democracy, and the people's livelihood. In many ways, the Nationalist Party was similar to the Congress Party in India. It had some socialist leanings, but its primary focus would become the unification of China. Reunification would require the power to defeat the warlords and the need to make alliances to achieve that end. With this goal in mind, Sun agreed to an alliance with the Communists and Russians. Like the Nationalists, the Communists had an ideological program for transcending regional affiliations. The Communists focused on class warfare and the political re-education of the powerless, the mobilization of the peasants and workers, with an army of some 10,000 lightly armed Communist militia. The warlords, despite their power, never had the ability to unite the country or win the allegiance of the vast majority of the people in China or the intelligentsia. Over the years between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party, they either absorbed or eliminated the war many warlords fracturing China so that the war gradually transformed into a bilateral national battle for leadership of the nation. The Communist and the Nationalist each had the eventual goal of eliminating each other. Neither ideology nor party could accommodate the existence of the other in the long run as their visions for the future were mutually exclusive. The Chinese Communist Party had slated entire classes of people for elimination and re-education and believed that the Communist Party needed to control the government to ensure the creation of a communist society. They could not tolerate the nationalist belief in private property, nor would the nationalist ever tolerate a communist government that was bent on their destruction. Both parties understood that regardless of any truces and negotiations, in the long runs theirs would be a brutal and merciless fight to the finish. When the U.S. attempted to intervene later in 1945 and 1946, they essentially misunderstood this element of the struggle between the two sides. For the Chinese, the Second World War and the early stages of the Cold War was seen through the lens of the Chinese Civil War and the struggle between the nationalists and the communists. On our next episode, we will begin the examination of the life and death struggle between the nationalists and the communists and the rise of two young men who would come to lead these competing visions for China, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. 
If you don't have a lot of friends in the history and you are already a contributor, but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. Follow us on social media. Check out our pictures for this episode. Ask questions or donate to the podcast. Check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.